Residents of a low-income housing project in Bloomington say living conditions keep getting worse. There are people living in pesticide-coated apartments. The problems at Phoenix Towers have caught the city's and state's attention. That is next on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm John Norton. Also on the show today, a normal community high school teacher says his immigrant students live in two worlds. And I think we forget about some of the experiences that they bring with them from their home country, from their home lives, into the school doors at the beginning of the day. Ricky King is Illinois' bilingual teacher of the year. Plus, an ISU journalism student gets national attention for an essay about black representation in the media. Our worst aspects are brought to the forefront, and our best aspects are pushed into the darkness. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update, which is just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Ryan Fuller and his mother Stephanie. I used to be under impression that I'd get made fun of and bullied, but I have not. People have actually like, oh, that's cool, you know? It's just something different, and I embrace that. Ryan and Stephanie's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. A public housing unit that serves mainly people with disabilities and older adults is in bad condition. That's according to some Bloomington staff members, residents, and personal advocates. WGLT's Lindsay Jones has more on the troubled history of Phoenix Towers in downtown Bloomington. In the final days of her life, the wishes of a Phoenix Towers resident known as Miss Katie were simple. She wanted to feel safe in the last place she would call home. And when she transitioned to hospice care, she wished to die with dignity and in peace. A caregiver and a decades-long friend of Miss Katie's said none of those desires were realized once she moved into the 13-story public housing unit that overlooks the city of Bloomington. Here's Bridget Sebastiani. She just didn't feel at home. You know, she didn't feel at home. She'd gotten to the point where she just she was dissatisfied with... Um, with her living conditions, um, she did just want to be at peace. Miss Katie came to Phoenix Towers in 2018. It was a sort of escape from a different housing situation in Bloomington. Sebastiani said Miss Katie was so eager to leave it behind, she packed her belongings into a cart and pushed it by herself to the imposing structure at 202 West Locust Street as soon as she was able to move in. When she first got there, she felt like it was better than where she came from, oh. um, but it, that changed. It, mm. it soon changed. Soon, Sebastiani said Miss Katie was trying to clear her apartment of bedbugs, even going so far as to block a gap between the floor and the door to try to keep them from getting inside. Roaches crawled on her kitchen countertops. I think that she felt if she complained too much about the, the place or something being broken, then she was looked down upon. She was a nuisance, you know, and she felt like that changed the way that they treated her. This was Miss Katie's story, but its themes of neglect, mistreatment, and unsanitary living conditions are still a reality years later for the people who continue to call Phoenix Towers home. That's according to residents, City of Bloomington staff, and local advocates for people with disabilities. Here's a resident who requested anonymity out of fear of retaliation. There's one resident who is 91 years old. Her apartment floods at least twice a year because the main sewer drain for the entire building is in her apartment. And 
it takes other residents screaming at management on her behalf to get her into an, a hotel or another apartment. Complaints filed with the city and the Illinois Housing Development Authority detail recurring problems over the past few years. Yet no formal action has been taken against the multi-billion dollar real estate company that owns Phoenix Towers. Phoenix Towers is privately owned by multinational, multi-billion dollar real estate firm Related Companies. It's headquartered in New York City. The company retains management of the property and maintains a contractual agreement with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development regarding its public housing offerings. That contract is administered by the Illinois Housing Development Authority, meaning the state is responsible for ensuring Phoenix Towers complies with HUD's, quote, uniform physical condition standards. Last September, the authority inspected 23 of Phoenix Towers units. More than half failed inspection. That's potentially jeopardized whether the company will finalize an agreement with the state that would have gotten them hundreds of thousands in grant money. A spokesperson for the state agency said the state has now turned the matter over to the IRS, classifying the development as, quote, noncompliant. Residents have filed more than 40 complaints with the city in recent years, but they say nothing changes no matter how many times city inspectors visit. In the city's attitude about the bugs as well, they're turning in receipts, so we can't do anything. Life Center for Independent Living, a local nonprofit, sometimes helps people without housing get housing. And sometimes that's in Phoenix Towers. Advocate Conan Calhoun says many people are so eager to find housing, they'll move in anywhere regardless of what they hear. People don't have any choice. They move in there and then everything that we had bought that was brand new Mm -hmm. was ruined within a month because of all of the bugs and the Mm -hmm. pesticides that they use inside of there. And people are literally so disappointed and crying. Like it's so sad to see it play out like that. If any punitive action by any governmental body were to be taken regarding the conditions at Phoenix Towers, it would be a first despite the fact that the city of Bloomington has been aware of issues for years. More than 40 complaints have been filed about Phoenix Towers since 2020. They detail problems like no air, no heat, and brown water. Many, of course, are about bugs. Here's a resident again. They're refusing to provide reasonable accommodations and help them. They are not supplying any sort of wrap for them to put it in. So people are just dragging bed bug infested furniture all through the building and on the elevators, which is just making the problems worse. A spokesperson for the city of Bloomington said in an email that, quote, the management staff and maintenance staff at Phoenix Towers have always responded positively and quickly. Michael Hurt, the city's disabilities coordinator, says he often gets phone calls from people seeking help at Phoenix. He says that's not part of his job, but regardless, he does try to guide residents appropriately. Hurt was at the property with some other city staff at one point. He said they saw the conditions that residents say have never been fixed. We actually held a meeting uh, early 2019, Human Resources Department and LifeSale. We went over to the towers and held a meeting with all of the residents. And it was extremely eye-opening. But we could see stuff in the room they had us meeting in. Dirt. Mold, water. Mold and water? Yeah, we can see it all. It was horrible. And they let us meet here? In the case of non-public housing, if a landlord or property management company were to be found in violation of city ordinances regarding health and safety, the consequences could involve being taken to Bloomington's administrative court. That's an arm of city government that deals with ordinance violations. Phoenix Towers and its owner have never been taken to administrative court or formally cited for ordinance violations, according to a city spokesperson.
Michael Hurt, the city's ADA coordinator, says he believes a financial threat could motivate the owners to improve the conditions long term, but he does not think the city at this point has the authority to do that. If I could uh, create the type of department that I wanted that would address these issues, it would be uh, something a lot more than a toothless tiger. It would be somebody that could actually walk in, uh, levy fines, demand changes. Prairie State Legal Managing Attorney Adrian Barr confirmed the low-income-oriented nonprofit is currently managing cases from residents at Phoenix Towers. But he says individual cases may take a while, and they don't solve things on a large scale. We do know the tenants are having an issue with conditions issues there, um, a, a variety of types of issues, uh, and we encourage them to contact us. The woman at the beginning of this story who moved to Phoenix Towers, Miss Katie, died on September 1st, 2019. Before that, she had been trying desperately to find a new place to live. And I think it was the day or two after she died, I got the call that mm. an opening came up for her. Wow. To move into there. And she had passed. And, you know, That's rough. She was really hanging on. She really wanted to get out of Phoenix Towers. Related companies did not make a spokesperson available before the time of recording. I'm Lindsay Jones. You can read more about that public housing issue and see documents we obtained at WGLT.org. Tomorrow on Sound Ideas, a performance that's been a part of Bloomington theater history for the last century will lower the curtain for the final time this spring. A preview of the 100th and final Passion Play, tomorrow on WGLT Sound Ideas. I'm John Norton. Thanks for listening to Sound Ideas. Normal Community High School's Ricky King has only been teaching three years, but he's already making a name for himself. King is Illinois' 2023 Bilingual Teacher of the Year. In this interview, King speaks with WGLT correspondent Michelle Steinbacher about the award and about his job helping English language learners in McLean County's largest school district. The district has said families in the district speak more than 50 languages. The smallest class that I have is eight students. That's my ESL level two English class where it's just English language learning students. The goal of that class is to teach them English, but my biggest class is say 26. That's one of my co-taught classes in history with Megan Hawkins, who's a fantastic colleague. But that class has about half general education students that are native English speakers and about half that are English language learning students from different countries in general. We have a student from Vietnam. We have Spanish speakers from Honduras and Guatemala and Mexico. So different countries and different backgrounds. You've been named Illinois Bilingual Teacher of the Year. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about that award? Did you know that was coming? No, I didn't. I was blindsided by the Bilingual Award, which is an incredible honor to have. I was nominated by a former colleague of mine, and she nominated me for the Early Career Educator Award. A few weeks ago, I was blindsided by a a Zoom call with the superintendent uh, for the entire state that said, actually, you're the bilingual teacher of the year recipient, which was kind of crazy. You had a colleague that nominated you. Could you speak to maybe why of all the teachers in the state of Illinois, you've been named bilingual teacher of the year? Well, I think maybe one of the reasons is she knows that I do a lot more outside of the classroom and outside of the ESL bilingual teaching position. I'm fortunate enough in my 
first few years of, of teaching to be a, a co-coach of a variety of different clubs, but then also be a teacher sponsor for a variety of different clubs that are related to English language learning students. One of our ELL students, Aurora Flores, asked me to help mentor her through a sociology project that asked her to do something to create a, a social good at our school, and that was creating the Hispanic Heritage Club, which started last year, to kind of create a space for our Hispanic students to not only interact with one another outside of the school day, because a lot of them maybe don't see each other during the school day, but also to try and create a space that is welcoming for all students, and mostly our, our Spanish-speaking English language learning students. We've been able to collaborate with the Spanish club, and through that collaboration, we're able to kind of bring our Spanish-speaking ELL students together with students who are native English speakers learning Spanish and do things for Dia de los Muertos and other activities that bring them together and bring all of these different cultures and languages together to work together to make our school a better place. Usually people who are nominated for these awards have been teachers for at least five years. Ricky is in his third year teaching at Normal Community High School. What do you think about that? Did Anyone from ISB talk to you about this being unusual because you're a younger teacher? Nobody from ISB has kind of talked to me about my limited experience in the teaching profession as a recipient of this award. I know I was talked to about the Illinois Teacher of the Year Award, and they told me that based on the fact that I have less than five years of teaching experience, I can't be a finalist for that, which is totally fine. Being the bilingual Teacher of the Year is an honor and an incredible one at that in and of itself. But it is really nice to have this recognition so early in my teaching career, and I owe it in part due to the amazing colleagues that I work with over at Norwood Community. What's your background? What brought you here? I grew up in the Chicagoland area. I've always wanted to be a teacher. I've had a few teachers in high school who made me feel cared for and made it feel like my voice mattered, maybe in some classrooms where I, I felt it didn't. So I had really fantastic classroom teachers who inspired me to want to teach. I came down to ISU, you know, knowing that ISU is the teacher school in Illinois. And, and then I studied abroad in Panama City, Panama. And while taking my own classes there, was asked to teach English as a second language to native Spanish speakers in Panama. And I kind of fell in love with that. Let's talk about bilingual education in Unit 5 schools. During this school year, there are nearly 850 students supported with English language learning classes. That's a jump, 80 higher than last year. Is that your understanding? That is my understanding. We've had a, a larger number of, of newcomer English language learning students. That That's kind of how we refer to students who are new to, new to the district, who are new to the country. So it is a bit of a jump, but it's nice to welcome more students into our programs and into our classrooms and into our support systems. I see students from a ton of different languages, from Vietnam, from the Philippines, from Japan, China, and then the varying countries that speak Spanish. So Honduras, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Mexico. Um, we have a student from Ecuador this year. And then our kind of our second biggest ELL student population uh, linguistically is French. So Democratic Republic of the Congo, where our students are speaking French and Lingala from the Congo. In Unit 5, for the younger kids, there are entire ESL programs. But once we're looking at the junior high and the high school level, these students who are new to English, new to the country, perhaps they have teacher support but not specific programs. You are one of how many bilingual teachers for Unit 5 high schools? For Normal Community, which is of the two high schools, the only one that houses the ESL bilingual program, I am one of four 
teachers and we have space for two ESLTAs, but currently only have one on hand. I'm kind of the history ESL co-teacher. So I teach U.S. history first hour civics, which is a government class. That's a requirement. And then I also teach regional world studies the ESL classroom at the high school level, a lot of times the majority of the content is occurring in English. And we as ESL bilingual teachers are using home languages and heritage languages to supplement the instruction to translate documents or engage in translingual practices where we're using both languages in tandem, but outside of the direct lecture that may be happening. Sometimes we forget that in addition to asking our ELL students to learn math, science, history, what have you. We're also asking them to do it in English, which is not their first language. And I think we forget about some of the experiences that they bring with them from their home country, from their home lives into the school doors at the beginning of the day. And then they go home to an entirely different culture that is different from ours and different from our school. And they come back each and every day to rinse and repeat. That's kind of the ELL experience. It is kind of living in two worlds at once. And some of my students can relate to my experiences because I also, you know, being Hispanic, sometimes I've felt that like I'm in two different worlds. And I think my students can relate to that and kind of see me as maybe an inspirational force to try and make it through the day. That was Normal Community High School teacher Ricky King, Illinois' bilingual teacher of the year, speaking with WGLT correspondent Michelle Steinbacher. King is currently also in grad school at ISU and helps supervise the Normal Community mock trial team and music technology club. He also continues to focus on broadening extracurricular offerings for English language learners. Thanks for listening to Sound Ideas. This is WGLT's news magazine with stories and conversations around Bloomington Normal and McLean County. An Illinois State University journalism student is getting attention for an essay about black representation in the media in central Illinois and beyond. Senior Marcus Pruitt recently wrote an essay called How the Issue of Representation Impacts Central Illinois. It's about how black people are treated unfairly in mainstream media. It references fellow ISU students like Jelani Day, who went missing and was found dead, and Ja'Kai Martin, who last fall raised concerns about the safety of LGBTQ plus students on campus. He also writes about Shamar Betts, who was sentenced to four years in prison for inciting a riot at a Champaign Mall after George Floyd's murder. In this interview with WGLT student reporter Jayla Johnson, Pruitt shares his interpretation of a cultural disconnect in central Illinois and what he hopes to change by calling attention to it. When it comes to, to minority media coverage, black media coverage in particular, we are not shown in our full light. Our, our worst aspects are brought to the forefront and our best aspects are pushed into the darkness. In the Shamar Betts story, why do you think the article about him inciting a riot disregarded mentioning who he is and only talked about his action? I think to them, the action is, is more of a, a scope of importance than the name. To them, they're trying to demonize this black kid for starting a riot at a mall. And oh my gosh, look at all this property that was destroyed. Look at everything that's going on. He has millions of dollars to pay. That's what we're, we're worried about. We're not worried about his humanity. We're not worried about putting his name in our pages because that's not what people should be focusing on. We are focused on the loss of property, and that's the main thing on our concern, not the reasoning behind the riots, not him. You're going to have people looking at, immediately looking at the destruction of property and, and the loss of revenue instead of why people are doing this. We are facing years and years and years, decades and centuries of racism and hatred and since we came to this country, and we're not being heard. How do you think media, media coverage play a role in covering Black death? 
when it comes to black media representation. You start with, with minstrelsy, and then when that becomes a bad social norm, you're looking at black people getting into these roles of minstrelsy, but since they're actually black, the white audience is like, okay, like that's fine because they're black, they're going into it too. They contribute to black death by taking away our humanity and showing everyone that they think we're not deserving of the same pedestal that they are. How can we create generational change? I think when it comes to, to, to generational change, you have to talk not only to the people in your generation, but the older generations, the younger generations. You have to try to encompass the biggest scope of people that you can. And I'm not saying you have to bear that pain, but when it comes to encompassing the biggest group of people you can, you have to sit down and talk to them on their level. Try to get them to understand where you're coming from. Try to understand where they're coming from in, in their terms of hatred and racism. I'm not saying you have to excuse their actions or anything, but if you want change, you have to understand where your enemy is coming from and realize that nine times out of 10, they're probably not the real enemy you should be talking about. How can we identify the cultural disconnect on a college campus? You know, because on the one hand, there are a lot of resources that we are not usually afforded that we have the, the privilege and blessing of using on campus. But at the same time, we are living amongst a culture of, of students who don't really know much about our culture personally. And what they do know is misrepresentation. Is there a way to establish that connection? and supporting each other in terms of giving each other a platform to speak the truths that need to be spoke. Um, but on top of that, I mean, like, just having conversations with people, like, especially conversations that you or they might be uncomfortable with. I'm not saying put your put yourself in, in endless situations where you're uncomfortable because that's not good for your mental health. But what I'm saying is you have to be willing to talk to some of these closed-minded people who was your target audience for pieces like the one you wrote about? My target audience for pieces like that is everybody. Everybody. Like, no matter who you are, you can read it, take it a certain way. But at the end of the day, I want it to be everybody. When I had to hone in and really think about who I was writing to, I'm thinking of our generation, people who are either on the fence or really trying to get deeper into that chain. As a Black journalist, what sort of change do you hope to create personally? I just want to make a world where people understand each other more and where there's not as much hateful violence. I don't want to say we're like in a cycle of violence, but like that's what America is built on. Genocide on Native peoples, enslavement of Black people, and like just the havoc that's been wreaked on the world for centuries at this point. I want to at least turn the dial back a little bit. Like as much as I can, I want to make the world a better place. That's Marcus Pruitt, a journalism major at Illinois State University, speaking with WGLT student reporter Jayla Johnson. You can find a link to Pruitt's essay at WGLT.org. And that's Sound Ideas today. WGLT's news magazine is made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm John Norton. Story help today came from WGLT correspondent Michelle Steinbacher, also student reporter Jayla Johnson, and WGLT's Lindsay Jones. The show was produced by Samantha Hill, and this is 89.1 FM, WGLT, and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network.